Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you chapter chapter two of the book of Daniel. Uvishnat Shtayim, the Machut Nebuchadnezzar, Chalam Nebuchadnezzar, Chalamot, Vatit Paem Rucho, Ushnato Nihiata Alav. In the second year of the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, and his spirit was agitated, and then sleep overcame him. As I mentioned in chapter 1, there are intentional parallels drawn between this story and the Joseph cycle in the book of Genesis in Sefer Breshit. There, too, the king Paro was troubled by his dreams, and his spirit was shocked, using the same words, pretty much, the word pa'am means to be agitated, like a vibrating bell, a pa'amon, when it's struck. However, there are some differences in, in the two stories, in the Daniel story versus the Joseph story. And the differences become evident in the very first uh, verse. We will see that Nebuchadnezzar wants his magicians not only to tell him the meaning of his dreams, but they're supposed to tell him what dreams he had, that is, the very dreams themselves. Now, at first glance, Nebuchadnezzar asking this seems insanely cruel, sort of like saying, hey, I'm thinking of a number between one and a billion, what is it? I mean, why not just tell his uh, soothsayers what uh, what he dreamed? And the answer, I think, becomes is hinted at in the first verse, and then becomes clear afterwards. It, he can't remember them. He had a series of dreams, and that's why it uses the word, the plural, chalomot, he dreamed dreams, and then it said sleep overtook him, because essentially he wakes up, and he knows that they were critical, and he may have some vague sense of what was going on, enough to confirm it if somebody tells him what he was dreaming, uh, but not enough to be able to identify the dreams or their meaning. Now, before we move on with uh, the chapter, I should note that there's a little problem with the dating um, that, that the dating that appears in the first verse. It dates this the events here to the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, and that's a little bit strange. Now, I mentioned in the first uh, session that the first exile of some 3,000 aristocracy and royalty, Daniel among them, and part of the uh, the uh, utensils, uh, the kelim of the Beit Hamikdash, that happened in Nebuchadnezzar's seventh year of rule, both according to our Tanakh and according to the Babylonian chronicles. Of course, that didn't coincide with this, the very difficult dating that started this book, which was the third year of Yoyakim. So I explain that that wasn't actually the third year of Yoyakim, but it was the third year of his independent rule after he broke away from Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, if that was his actual third year, then this dating would work out perfectly, because since Nebuchadnezzar begins his rule in Yoyakim's fourth year, then the completion of Daniel's three-year scribal training, remember it took him three years to train to be a scribe, uh, that would come out to be Nebuchadnezzar's second year, as it states here. But the dating is really a bit of a problem, and various commentators offer various resolutions. Um, so I'll just leave it as I did with chapter one. Perhaps this is the second year of some significant event that uh, we don't have. Vayomer HaMelech Likro Lachartumim Vila'a Shafim Vila'am Chashafim Vila'a Kazdim Lahagid LaMelech Chalomotav Vayavo Vayamdu Lufnei HaMelech Vayomer Lahem HaMelech Chalom Chalamti Vatipa Emruchi Ladaat Et HaChalom So the king commanded to call, uh, he called to his, uh, for his magicians, his necromancers, his sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, the Kazdim, to tell the king about his dreams, and they came and they stood before the king. Um, the translations of the different types of magicians is loose at best. Khartoumim appears in the Egypt story. Mechashafim uh, 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 is definitely a Mesopotamian word. Um, and as far as the Chaldeans go, that is, they're just a racial group that was identified with uh, the king himself, 
So Ibn Ezra says they were astrologers, uh, but perhaps they were just famous for a certain type of wisdom, or perhaps Nebuchadnezzar would call the Kazdim because they were his own ethnic group when he was really troubled. We're continuing on, and the king said to them, I dreamed a dream, and my spirit is agitated to know the dream. As I said, he needs to know the dream and not just the meaning of the dream because he can't remember what the dream was. And as we will see, the magicians do not seem to understand this. And the Chaldeans, the Kazdim, spoke to the king in Aramaic. The book of Daniel now switches into Aramaic since that was the lingua franca of the time. Any Hebrew that you've been reading up to this point uh, uh, in conversations has been a translation into Hebrew. Now remember that the Kazdim were a Semitic tribe who migrated into Mesopotamia from Aram, uh, from the Syrian area, uh, some hundreds of years before they took over uh, all of Babylonia under Nebuchadnezzar's father. Um, Aramaic is similar to Hebrew and as such has a certain holiness to it, which is why our book can be a Kodesh book. Some of our prayers, in fact, such as the Kaddish, uh, is in Aramaic. So I will read the Aramaic and translate it and explain it just like I do in Hebrew. Uh, occasionally I'll point out the similarity of an Aramaic word to Hebrew or to Arabic. Malkala almin emar chilma O king, may you live forever. Tell your servants, that is, tell us, your dreams, and we will speak, or nechave might mean to explain its solution or its meaning. Now, this seems like a perfectly reasonable request. If you don't understand, or if they didn't get, which they don't seem to have gotten, that Nebuchadnezzar can't remember what he dreamed. He can't tell them what he dreamed. The king apparently doesn't understand that his magicians don't understand, so he gets angry. Verse 5. Anei malka ve'amar lekazdaei milta mini azda the king responded and said to the Chaldeans, to the Kazdim, the word has gone out for me. Whoever can't inform me of my dream and its interpretation will be ripped to shreds. It's like being drawn and quartered. And his house, which may mean not only the physical structure of the house, but the entire family, will be put onto a dung heap. The expression, the word has gone out for me, is known to us from the book of Esther, when the king makes an oral command, one that usually uh, indicates a death penalty. After Vashti refuses the king's summons in chapter 1 of the book of Esther, his advisors advise him as follows, If it please the king, let the royal word go out before him. And after Haman throws himself at Esther in the second party, the book uh, there says, Hadavar Yatsami Piamelech, the word came out before the king. So that indicates a, a death penalty decree. Vehein Chelma Ufishrei Teha Chavon Matnan Unvizba Vikar Sagi Tekabalun Min Kadamai Lahein Chelma Ufishrei Hachavoni. Whoever speaks or explains, describes the dream and its interpretation, he will be given gifts and spoils and will receive great honor. So, Tell me the dream and its interpretation. Of course, all of these sorcerers and sages are in big trouble because how are they going to be able to tell him what he dreamed? And they know they're in big trouble. So they, the Kazdim, who obviously represent all of these soothsayers, repeat and say, let the king tell the dream to his servants and afterwards we'll explain to you what it means. That's a bad move. Ana Malka Vamar Min Yatsivya Da Ana di Idana Antun Zavnin Kokabil di Khazetun di Azdamini Milta. And the king responded and said, I know for sure that you are just buying time, di Idana 
Anton Zavnin, because you have seen the word has gone out from me. That expression, Idana Anton Zavnin, is just like the English one, you are buying time. But, or at least that's where the English expression comes from. But the sense here is a little bit different because he's not exactly just claiming that they're stalling. He's saying that they're trying to stall so that the current time, meaning the situation which is put in motion by the king's anger and agitation, the, the potential death penalty, will become more relaxed, as he continues to say in the next verse. Since you have seen that whoever can't tell me, there is but one law, one verdict for you, which means death, uh, you have arranged to say false and malicious words before me until that time changes, until the troubles change, which means until I relax, theoretically, which I ain't going to do, is what he's saying. So tell me my dream, and I will know if you have spoken its meaning. So essentially, uh, there's nothing for the Kazdim and the other soothsayers to do, uh, but what any uh, um, uh, red-blooded, uh, bogus soothsayer would do. Anu kazdai kadam malka ve'amarin lo itai enesh al yabeshta Dimilat Malka Yuchala Hachavaya, Kolkabil di Kol Melech Rav Shalit, Mila Kidna Lo Sheel, Lechol Khartom, Vashaf Vichazdai. The Chaldeans answered for the king and they said, There is no such man on this dry earth, Al Yabeshta, that can explain according to the words, that is the conditions that the king laid out, that is to tell us not only the meaning, but the dream. Indeed, no great and ruling king, which is a really bad thing to say, has ever asked such a thing to any magician, necromancer, or, or Chaldean, which means they're saying essentially it's not fair. Umilta di Malka Shael Yakira Vaacharin Lo Itai Di Yahavine Kadam Malka Lahain Elahin di Midrahon in Bisra Lo Itahi. And the thing that the king asks is too heavy, too difficult, and there are none other who will become afterwards who could describe it before the king except for the gods or the angels or some supernatural creatures who do not come among the flesh. Al Bisra Lo Itahi, which means that don't dwell among humans. I think what they're hinting in the second sentence is that the king shouldn't think that just if he kills them, he'll wind up with better results from his next set of soothsayers because they'll fail just like just the next batch will fail just like uh, we did, and therefore there's no reason to have us killed. They're clearly very nervous. Um, as you might have expected, this little uh, two-verse speech about how the king is being unfair does not go over very well with Nebuchadnezzar II. Kol kabil dina malka binasuk tsaf sagi va'amar lahovada lechol hakimei bavel. Immediately, as a result of this, the king became agitated and extremely angry. Sagi means very or a lot or really, really. And he commanded that all the sages of Babylon be destroyed. Chacham is clearly a generic name for all the advisors, soothsayers, whether their knowledge comes supposedly from supernatural forces, uh, sorcery, necromancy, or whether they study in, uh, in uh, you know, uh, like academies of Chochmah. V'data nefkat v'chakimaya mitkatlin uva'od daniel v'chavroi lehit katala. And the verdict, the rule, went out. The word dot is very interesting. It's a, it's a, a Persian word 
Um, and it means, it's like, a, it's similar to the English word that we have today, actually the English word that we have today called data, which is a piece of information, or actually datum is a piece of information, and data is a, a number of uh, information items, so that comes from the word dot, which is uh, information, but here it means more the rule or the verdict, and of course in modern Hebrew, a religious person, orthodox person, is called dati, because he follows the rules. maya mitkatlin, when it says that, um, it may mean that the sages should be killed, or it may mean it may be in past tense that they have already been killed. But either way, Daniel and his friends were sought out. Uvo Daniel katala. They were sought out to be destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar is quite the unhinged despot, or at least he uh, demands a 100% success when he demands it. Uh, and unfortunately, of course, we've seen modern despots that are quite as crazy as uh, he is. There's no sort shortage of them, unfortunately. This reminds me of, uh, most clearly, or I don't know, perhaps, it reminds me of Saddam, Saddam Hussein's uh, two sons. I remember there was Uday, and I can't remember the other one, uh, who had athletes tortured uh, if they lost uh, matches. And that's the kind of, uh, of craziness that you get uh, in this kind of situation. Nebuchadnezzar was uh, no different. In verse 14 now, Daniel will attempt to deal with the problem since uh, he obviously doesn't want to be killed. Badayin Daniel hativ ita uteim la'arioch rav tabachaya dimalka dinefak lekatala lechakimei bavel. Then Daniel offered the following advice and reason reasoning to Ariok, the head of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the sages, all the sages of Babylon. And, of course, look for the parallel in the Joseph uh, events. Uh, Potiphar was the Rav HaTabachim, the same job as we have here. That title can mean high executioner, it can mean the head of police or the head of the guard, it could actually have a military application as well, but uh, there's a sword involved in the uh, application of that job, that's for sure. The word uh, eta and te'em, or let me focus on eta, is parallel to the Hebrew word etsa, which is wisdom uh, or advice. The tat, which is a more emphatic sound than the tough, in modern Hebrew we don't pronounce it, but in Arabic there's a difference between da and ta, so that emphatic da is often switched with the Hebrew tsa. Um, so you have to kind of switch those letters. There's a whole series of letters that you have to play around with as you're translating from Ara- uh, as you're kind of looking for similarity between Arabic, uh, uh, between Aramaic and Hebrew. Anyway, continuing on. Anei ve'amar la'ariok shalita di malka alma data mahach tsefa min kada malka Edayin milta hodariok l'daniel. He responded and said to Ariok, the king's enforcer, "Why is this harsh? This chutzpah uh, rule come out from the king?" Then Ariok explained the situation to Daniel. Now, as I said in chapter one, uh, as well as you know, at, at what happens in, in chapter one, as well as in the Joseph story, is we see that Daniel wisely cultivates relationships. V'Daniel al uva'a min malka di zaman yintin lei. Then Daniel came and requested from the king the time be given to him so he could describe the meaning of the dream to the king. Obviously, since he didn't ask the king, uh, to, he didn't ask the king to tell him what the dream was. Like the other sages, uh, the king knew that Daniel would provide him with that as well. Uh, also, we'll see that uh, it, it, it's possible that Daniel himself didn't go to the king, but that he sent Ariok with a message and and uh, managed to get a, a short stay for the uh, death penalty. Edayin Daniel Levite Azal then Daniel went home and he informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the situation. 
Rachamima lemi be'eim in kadam ela shemaya al raza dina dilo yehovdun Daniel v'chavroi im she'ar chakimei bavel and that they should request from God of the heavens about this mystery in order that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed along with the rest of the sages of Babylon. That doesn't mean that he wants all the sages in Babylon dead except for them. It means there's probably some killing going on already and he wants to stop it not only for himself but for the rest of the sages as well. Edayin Daniel v'chezva di leilia raza gali Edayin Daniel barich le'eloh shemaya then Daniel, in a night vision, had the mystery revealed, and then Daniel blessed God in heaven. Now, the issue of whether Daniel was a prophet or not, I'll take up when we start uh, with the second half of the book, where the real vision starts to show up. Uh, here, he certainly sees a replay of Nuchanetzar's dream in his own dream, and he understands its implication, but it is not clear if he is actually a full-fledged prophet. The prayer of thanks that uh, Daniel is about to give now uh, extends from verse 20 to, through verse 22. And you'll see a lot of similarities between his prayers and our modern prayers a little bit here, but more in the second half of the book, from chapters 7 to 12. Note the expression, Anav Amar, which is used all the time here. Um, it's found in the book of Eov as well, and it doesn't really so much to, to say to... It doesn't necessarily mean that there's a response to something. It really means that, that it's introducing an assertive speech. It might be a response, Anav Amar, but it could be just that you know he began to speak assertively. Ane Daniel va'amar leheve shmei di Eloha mivarach min alma v'yad alma di chokmata gvurta di lehi. Daniel responded and said, "Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever." In that, not in that, or why? Because knowledge and strength belong to Him. V'hu mahashnei idanaiya v'zimnaiya mahat dei malchin u'mehakem malchin yahev chokmata lechakimim u'mandi'a liyad evina. He alters the times and the seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who know how to reason, which seems to imply that he doesn't just uh, throw gifts at people, but he uh, helps people who help themselves. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and illumination is infused in him. To you, God of our fathers, of my fathers, I give recognition and praise. That's Hodaya and Tushpechan, because you have given me strength and knowledge. That you, uh, in what way? That you inform me of what I requested of you. Specifically, you inform me of what the king's issue was, the dream and the explanation of it. Kol kabil Daniel al al ariok di mani makalhov da chachakime bavel azal v'chein amar lei chachakime bavel al tehoved haalni kadam malka ufishra malka achave. Immediately after this, that is a sense of rush. Daniel came to Ariok. Who had the king, uh, who, who the king had appointed to destroy the sages of Babylon, and he went and said to him, Don't destroy the sages of Babylon, bring me before the king, and I will tell him the solution. As we will see, he tells him the dream and the solution. 
Edion Arioch Behit Behalla Hanel Daniel Kadam Malka Vachena Marlei Di Ashkacha Di Givar Min Bnei Galuta Di Yehud Di Pishrela Malka Yehuda And Arioch in a great rush and a big tumult brought Daniel before the king and he told the king that a person was found from the exiles of Judea who will inform the meaning to the king. Now, earlier to Daniel, as I said, made his own request before the king. But uh, you know, it seems to be here that this is the first time that Daniel is seeing the king. So it could be that Ariok was his messenger in the previous section. And the king responded and said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, that is, Daniel's name was his his Babylonian name was Belshazzar. Um, it is, is it within your capability to tell me the dream that I saw and its meaning? The word kahel um, it comes, is similar to the Hebrew word yachol, to be able to. Um, the verse possibly reminds us of Daniel's Babylonian name, because the king will in later chapters make a big deal about how Daniel is named after the Bob- Babylonian god Bel, which is a Babylonian form of the god Baal, of the Phoenician god Baal, whom the Babylonians had adopted as their own. Anei Daniel kada malka v'amar raza di malka sha'el lo chakimin ashpin chartumim gazrim yochlim l'achvayal malka. Daniel answered and said before the king, the mystery that the king asked, no sage or necromancer or sorcerer or astrologer can tell the king, which means he agrees with them. Um, that uh, they uh, that that it is not within human capabilities to tell the dream, but he's don't worry, he's going to get out of trouble. Note that the list of soothsayers is flexible here. Instead of um, Kazdim, we have Gazrim. In another one, we'll have Gazrim and Kazdim. Uh, the key is that it usually is always four, four identifiable groups, and that's because the number four is very important uh, in this uh, in this book, as we will see as we go on. So, if no man can tell what the dream is, then how come Daniel is not, not up the creek without a paddle? Because Biram Itai Eloh Bishmaya Gale Razin Vahodalamalkan Vukhanetsar Madi Lahevi Bacharit Yomaya Chelmach Vachezve Rashecha Mishkavach Dinahu. However, with me is the God of heavens who reveals mysteries and in fact, who was the one who informed the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. The dreams and visions that were in your head while you were lying down, they're all his. They're all God's. The phrase Achari Amim, of course, which we have here, Acharit Yomaya, is a loaded, loaded term. It hints at the eschatological, meaning those things that will happen at the end of days in Messianic times. However, it's important to realize that the expression literally just means days to come later than these. It doesn't necessarily mean the end of days. It really means later days. There is no doubt that that when that expression is used, even if it's not referring to the end, when we're referring to the end, as we will later in the book, Daniel used the word Ketzi Amim. Achri um, Amim, even if they're not messianic days, they are certainly messianic-like days. They're days that will greatly affect and alter human history, and it's God's presence that will be felt or seen in those times. Um, the first Achri Amim we have is used by Jacob, and of course there's a famous midrash about how Jacob was going to tell them when the uh, Mashiach was going to come, but uh, God uh, didn't want him to reveal it. Um, but if you look carefully at that, if you look carefully at Jacob's visions, they all have to do, those blessings that he gave to his children, all have to do with what will happen to the tribes when they enter Israel after the uh, Egyptian exile, which is really what he wanted to know. Let me tell you what will happen after the exile is over. Of course, had things worked out, had Moshe been able to bring 
uh, the nation of Israel to the promised land after receiving the Torah. It may well have been the beginning of the Messianic age. It may have been that we never would have gone through troubled times uh, afterwards. And in fact, in Tanakh, and as the rabbis point out about things that happen in Tanakh, we very often get to the doorstep of Messianic times, as it was with Solomon and Chizkiyahu and Yoshiao, and, and according to Rabbi Akiva, Bar Kochba, only to have things not worked out because we weren't able to seal the deal for whatever reason. In any event, returning to our story, this is the latter days that will seal Nebuchadnezzar's deal and the fate of his empire. Verse 29, Chavtet. Ant Malka Rayonach Mishkavach Saliku Madi Lehevi Achare Dinah Vigale Razaya Hodach Madi Lehevi. You, O king, your thoughts have come on your bed about that which will happen after this. And the revealer of mysteries, Vigalei Razaya, that is God in heaven, as he said, uh, has informed you what will be. Va'ana lo b'chokma di itai bi min kol chaya raza dina gelili lahein al divrati pishva l'malka yehodu'un v'rayonei levavach tindai. And I, it is not with any knowledge that I have more than any other living person that this mystery has been revealed to me. Rather, it is that the solution be ref- be informed to the king, lahein al divrati pishra l'malka yehodu'un, and that you know your internal thoughts. That is God. He's giving due respect to uh, to uh, to the king Nebuchadnezzar, but what he's also saying is the reason why he had these dreams, and while Daniel is able to bring in the solution to the dreams, because that's how God wants it. And now let's move on to the dream. Antu malka chazei havaita va'alut selim chad sagi. Salma dechein rav v'zivehi atir ka'em l'kabalach v'revei dechil. You, O king, looked, and you had a vision that a single great statue, this statue was large and exceptionally bright, that is, very shiny, as we'll see, it's made of metals. It arose before you, and its appearance was awful, dechil, meaning, not awful in a modern sense, but meaning inspiring awe and fear. Hutsalma reshedi dahav tav chadohi uderohi dighasaf meohi viarchetei dinachash. The statue, its head was quality gold, its chest and arms were made of silver, its abdomen and thighs were made of bronze. Um, just to recognize some of these words, the Hebrew Zion also is interchanged with the Aramaic Dalid. Uh, which probably had a sibilant sound because the Greek, uh, we think of the, the Greek delta uh, was actually, uh, I'm sorry, the Greek uh, Zion was a zeta. It was sort of a combination of a dalin and a zion. So you can see where those two letters really kind of interchange. Um, in any event, so the Hebrew word chazeh comes out in Aramaic as chadeh, and the Hebrew zeroa or arm comes out as the Aramaic deroa. Anyway, continuing on. Shakohi di farzel raglohi minehena di farzel minehena di chasaf. Its lower legs, I guess from the um, the knees down to the ankles, were made of iron, and the feet were partially iron and partially terracotta. Terracotta is baked clay uh, before it is glazed. Chaze havaita ad di hitgezeret even di lovi dayin. And then you saw, that is, while you were still looking, a stone was detached by no visible means, literally without a hand, and struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and shattered them. This is, of course, where the expression feet of clay comes from. Kachada, Parzla, Kaspa, Nechasha, Kaspa, 
Vahavu Kiur min Idre Kayet, Unisahimon Rucha, Vahol Atar, Lohishta Kachlahon, Vahavna di Machatlet Salma, Havat Latur Rav, Umalat Kol Ara. Then it ground up as one. What, what ground up? The iron, the terracotta, the silver, and the gold, and it was like chaff from the summer threshing. Kayit in Aramaic is similar to Kayitz the summer in Hebrew, and all of it was carried off by the wind to an undiscoverable place. I think that's what Kol'atar Lohish uh, Dekachon, uh, it doesn't mean uh, that, uh, it means a, a place that can't be discovered. And the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. We'll see that the stone itself was pulled off of a smaller mountain, but we'll only see that a little bit later. So that's the dream, and its meaning we will speak. That is, I will now tell you, I will now speak before the king. The word hav is to give. You are the king, the king of kings, who God of heaven has given stability and power and honor to. So again, he compliments the king, he makes sure he gets all his due respect, but he's telling him that God of the heavens is the one who controls human history, especially political, national history. He has given you into your hands all the dwelling places of man and beasts of the wild of the fields and birds of the sky and has caused you to rule all of these onto Reshadi Dahava. You are the head of gold. Um, again, Daniel never lets up on the fact that God is the one who allows human kings control of their political history. Uvatrach takum malchu achori ara minach umalchu tlita achari dinachasha and after you will rise another Malchu, weaker than you, and then a third Malchu after that, that was the bronze one, who will rule over the entire world. Now you may have noticed that I am not translating the word Malchu. And the reason why I'm not translating it is because it can mean either an empire or a monarchy, but it could also mean a specific single king or ruler. And I'll return to this issue after Daniel completes the dream interpretation. Umalchu uh, revi'a'a Tehevi takifa kifarzala, kolkabel di farzala mahadek vechashel kola, uchafarzala di miraa, kol ilain tadek viteroa. And the fourth king, or kingdom, will be as strong as iron in the way that iron grinds and smashes everything in front of it. And like iron, it will, gra- it will grind and smash all of these, meaning the first three. Now, don't confuse the smashing of the entire statue through the clay feet uh, by that stone to the smashing of the, that's described that the iron does here. Uh, we don't see the iron smashing the first three, uh, but it fits into the image of the feet being made out and the legs being made out of iron because the idea is everything that it tramples on it crushes uh, beneath it. So, to recap, the first, the gold one is Nebuchadnezzar, the second, the silver, does nothing in particular other than be of lesser value than the first. The third, while cheaper, the bronze, is harder. That is, it is able to control, extend extend the rule over a greater part of the earth. Of course, gold and silver were not used in warfare, um, but before the Iron Age, and even into the Iron Age, it was bronze that was the hardest substance before iron was uh, could be uh, um, could be essentially generated in large amounts. The fourth, of course, is the ugliest and the cheapest, iron, but it's also the strongest. It's de- defined by its crushing utilitarianism. 
the word viteroa, by the way, it doesn't come from ra'ah, reshayin ayin, which in Hebrew means to be weak. Again, the ayin is one of those substitutes for the Hebrew tzadi, so we get ratzatz, which means to crush or to shatter. V'di chazaita raglaya ve'etzbe'ata menhein chasafti pechar, menhein parzel, malchu, so what does that mean? And I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Malchu poliga tehevei, as you saw, the feet and toes, which were made partially of clay-based terracotta and partially of iron, uh, what that means is that the kingdom, or the king, will be divided. But from the strength of the iron that's in it, it will maintain its strength, even in the face of what you saw, which is that it's diluted with mud-laden terracotta. The word tina means mud, the word pechar means clay, and I think the reason why uh, Daniel is sort of softening up the terracotta is to show that there's a dilution going on, there's an unstable material, and even though the iron will hold out for a while, eventually all of this lowly, unstable material will eventually lead to its destruction. And the toes of the feet, which are partially of iron and partially of terracotta, what does that mean? It means that part of the kingdom or part of this king's rule will be strong and part will be fragile. And that which you saw, which was the iron mixed in with this clay-based terracotta, means that they, either the kingdom or the, uh, the king, will be mixed together with the children, the offspring of man. And what that seems to mean is that the king... Uh, if it's a king, will marry non-royalty, or, or it could be if it's an empire, that the entire armies will be comprised uh, based on a treaty of commoners as well as nobles, and that they won't stick together well in much the same way that iron doesn't mix with terracotta. Before we get to the meaning of the crushing stone, let's talk about identifying these four parts of the statue. Because while the first part of the statue, the gold head, is clearly designated as Nebuchadnezzar, as Nebuchadnezzar. None of the other pieces are identified with any historical uh, uh, king or kingdom. Now, most commentators see this as a parallel to the apocalyptic visions that we'll see in the second half of the book. In chapter 8, Daniel sees creatures that are clearly defined as empires, not just kings. There, it's Persia and Greece. And in chapter 7, there are four beasts that rise up, and that also seems to represent empires and not individual kings. However, it's important to note that all of those visions happen at the end of, or, or at, at the tail end of, or after the Babylonian Empire has fallen. Chapter 7 ha- happens during the time of King Belshazzar, uh, who we know, uh, not Belshazzar Daniel, but Belshazzar without a tet, who we know actually from history now was not actually a, reg- uh, a king, but he was a regent when the king Nabonidus took off for a while. And uh, the Babylonian Empire ends shortly after its death. Now, it's true. The word acharit yamim is used here as well as it's used in the second part of the book. So you might say, therefore, whatever the second part of the book is talking about, this part of the book is talking as well. However, as I said before, acharit yamim is a relative term. It means days later than the ones that are taking place now. And this is some 70 years before the prophecies of the second half of the book. Um, 
the second half of the book, the audience is the Jewish people. I mean, the audience is Daniel, but he's representing the Jewish people. And of course, the Jewish people are very interested in the flow of the four kingdoms, uh, these historical kingdoms that will that will happen. It affects their history. But this chapter is being spoken to Nebuchadnezzar. Why would Nebuchadnezzar be interested in some future series of uh, of um, of kingdoms. Once his kingdom is over, what does he care? It's all over for him. And why would God tell him about it? Now again, it's it's true that most commentators identify the silver chest as the Median or the Persian Median Empire that replaced Bavel, and the bronze and iron, are, that is the last two uh, pieces, are maybe Persia and Greece, or maybe the, the Greeks and the Romans, or maybe the first one is the combined Greeks and Romans, and the fourth one is the Muslims. It all depends on which commentator that you read, and all of this is possible. And there's no question that the second half of the book, that's the direction it's going at. But I have to be honest, I'm lean, I lean towards the idea that these four medals that make up these, uh, that make up this statue, this great statue, are simply four kings of Babylon. Uh, the first one is the powerful Nebuchadnezzar. The second one, whoever he is, maybe Evel Merodach, maybe not, uh, is simply weaker than the first without adding any value. Uh, the third one expands the kingdom, what actually did happen uh, later on in the Babylonian Empire. And then finally, the one who either rules through intermarriage or through poor treaties, and eventually his empire is uh, brought down. Um, as, I, as I said, there are many groups of four in our book. Um, we have Daniel and his three friends. Uh, we have the four type of soothsayers. There are a lot of fours, but not all the fours are the same. And therefore, I, I would not want to say that just because we had four kingdoms in the end of the book, that now that we have four distinct uh, rules, that that necessarily means that it's kingdoms. I think it's four kings of Babylon until they are crushed in the end. In fact, I think there may be a fifth uh, king here, because we have the legs of iron from the knees to the feet, and then we have the feet, which are made out of, uh, of clay and uh, iron, as if one king had this powerful uh, uh, iron-type cast to it, and then his child, the fifth king, uh, started to uh, either intermarriage or make foolish alliance, and that caused the structure to collapse. Now, in the next verse, in verse 44, Daniel explains the meaning of the shattering rock. And in the days of these kings, the God of the heavens will establish a king that is a new king, or a new empire, if you prefer, that will never be destroyed, and whose rule will never be given to another, it will shatter and finish off all of these kings or all of these empires, and it will endure forever. Kol kabel di chazaita di mitura itgezeret even di lo vidayin veheideket parzala nechasha chaspa kaspa vidahava elah rav hoda lemalka ma di lehevi acharei dina viatziv chelma umehemen pishrei. And that which you saw, a stone sheared from the mountain without a visible force, literally with no hand, that will grind the iron, the terracotta, the silver, the gold, um, the bronze. This is the great God who has informed the king what will happen after this. Your dream is true and the interpretation is reliable. According to my interpretation, the word meheman actually can mean not only reliable, but it is that what I have just said, that's exactly what's going to happen. 
According to my interpretation, the stone plucked from the mountain by God is not God or a Jewish king, but is actually Cyrus the Great, who began the Persian Empire that would last for 300 years. And one need only to look at uh, Sefer Yeshayahu, chapter Mem, chapter 40 and beyond, to see how uh, the Jewish prophet considered Cyrus to be the chosen one of God, and his goal was to A, end the Babylonian Empire, to smash it and shatter it, and to free the Jewish people to go back to their homeland. Um, if you don't agree with my point of view, and this is not talking about the four kings of Babylon, but it's four empires, so maybe this fifth king refers to the Hashmonaim, uh, who defeat the split Greek empire of the Seleucids, or perhaps the stone refers messianically to some future king of Israel that will last forever and ever, and which uh, hopefully, maybe, we see the beginning of which in our own days. In any event, back to the story. Bedayin Malka Nevucha Netzar Nifal Alampohi Udaniel Sigid Umincha Veni Chochin Amar Lenasachale. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and prostrated himself before Daniel and commanded gifts and offerings be poured out before him. Now, this seems a bit much. I mean, would Nebuchadnezzar really do such a thing in public? Uh, Paro didn't prostrate himself in front of Joseph just because he was good at, uh, at, uh, at, telling, at interpreting dreams. So I think the point here is to remind us not to lose the track of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was an idol worshiper. The word nichochim is used only for sacrifices. So it's as if he is sacrificing directly to Daniel or Daniel is a representative to, uh, to, to, uh, to the God of heavens. I think the author may be trying to point out that uh, this was not like an instant conversion and Nebuchadnezzar became a monotheist and everybody lived happily ever after. To Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Daniel is just another representative of another god with a small g. Even though that god may be perhaps the strongest of the gods, it's still just a god. And I think the next verse indicates and supports that idea. Daniel the king responded to Daniel and it said it is truth that your God is the God of gods and the master of kings meaning he controls political history he reveals mysteries since you were able to reveal the mystery which is a very performance based evaluation that is how do I know that your God's powerful because you managed to solve this problem had you not then you wouldn't so uh, again, I don't think it's uh, you know while he may recognize this bell as Baal as being maybe the father of the gods or or perhaps on a slightly higher level than the other gods, uh, he, he's no monotheist. Edayin Malka Daniel Rabbi Umatznan Ravravan Sagian Yahav Lei Vehashlete Al Kol Medina Bavel Verav Signin Al Kol Chakimei Bavel. Then. Similar to what happened to Joseph, of course. The king made Daniel great and gave him many and great gifts, and he gave him authority over the province, or perhaps Medina is the city of Bavel, and he made him chief officer of all the sages, all the soothsayers, uh, although it's kind of interesting how Daniel would have handled uh, uh, necromancers and soothsayers as their boss, but that's a separate issue. V'daniel ba'am in Malko mani alavita di Medina Bavel l'shadrech mishach v'aveh negao Daniel Bitra Malka, uh, and Daniel requested from the king that uh, that uh, Shadrach 
and Meshach and Aven Nagaur, of course his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, be appointed administrators over the city, that is everything that took place in the city, or, or maybe the province of Babel, and that Daniel himself was stationed in the gates of the kingdom. Of course the gates were the city where the judges gave judgment, which means Daniel was raised to a very high place. So just like Joseph became in Egypt and Mordechai became in Persia, so did Daniel become in Babel.